Hello and welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry. Today's episode is on prophets and revelation. We'll also talk about what it means to sustain the prophet, what happens if you disagree with the prophet, and we'll talk about some of the social issues that are kind of pressing in the church today, especially female equality and LGBT issues. I'm really excited about this episode. It's very important to the paradigm that I have, the principles that we'll talk about today. I actually think this is going to be one of my least controversial episodes. Most of what I'm going to share with you, I think most of the fair Mormon apologists will be right in line, almost 100% in line with how I view things. One of the biggest problems in faith crisis that our good fair Mormon apologists are trying to explain to members is that an unrealistic, too high view of prophets and revelation sets one up for issues with faith crisis because we have too high of expectations. So this view might be a little off what the average member, what the average LDS member might view things on, but in terms of what our apologists and LDS informed defenders are trying to explain to help people through faith crisis, I think what I'm going to say is mostly in line. Okay, so let's get into it. Patrick Mason, in his great book, Planted, covers this topic very well. One of the interesting things he says is that there's this saying that the Catholic Church says that a pope is infallible and no one believes it. And the Mormon Church believes that the prophet is fallible and no one believes it. Meaning, in the Catholic Church, they want to make the pope infallible and that the doctrine the Pope says is from God and for real, but no one seems to believe this. But in the Mormon church, we really have this concept that prophets are human and they're not perfect, but the members don't want to believe that. They want to believe the prophet is perfect. You don't have to look very hard to find a lot of quotes from church history to support this concept. Joseph Smith said, I told them I was but a man and they must not expect me to be perfect. If they expected perfection from me, I should expect it from them. But if they would bear with my infirmities and the infirmities of the brethren, I would likewise bear with their infirmities. I'm down for that. I'm not perfect. I can be generous with the prophets, and I hope the people can be generous with me. President Charles W. Penrose of the First Presidency once said, We do not believe in the infallibility of man. When God reveals anything, it is truth, and truth is infallible. No president has claimed infallibility. When I was a youth, Jack Christensen was a popular youth speaker, and he told this story once. He said he met the prophet Ezra Taft Benson once, and he said he was so comforted because he noticed that Ezra Taft Benson, he was clean-shaven, but he had missed a spot right under his nose, at the top of his lip, at the top of his, in his mustache area, he had a little patch that he had not shaven. And Jack Christensen said, oh, I was so relieved to know the prophet isn't perfect. And oh, that means I don't have to be perfect too. And I don't know if he meant it to have this effect, but it had the exact opposite effect on me. I remember thinking the prophet is so perfect that the only thing the prophet ever does wrong is maybe occasionally he might miss a spot when he shaves. I think that kind of capsulizes our view of the prophet. We talk about prophet fallibility, that they're just human, but it's really lip service. We don't buy it. We want to put our prophets on a pedestal. We want to believe everything they say is God-breathed. We want to believe they're perfect. Another idea of this 
infallibility concept is that sometimes we might have the idea that a prophet is fallible when it comes to behavior, but infallible when it comes to teaching or doctrine. Especially related to that polygamy episode, I think it's easier for people to forgive Joseph maybe of some wrong actions related to polygamy, like implementing it the wrong way and committing a sin while he did it. But it's very, very difficult to apply that fallibility to the actual doctrinal revelation process. That's very scary for us to do. Joseph Smith said, I never thought it was right to call up a man and try him because he erred in doctrine. It looks too much like Methodism and not like Latter-day Saintism. Methodists have creeds which a man must believe or be kicked out of their church. I want the liberty of believing as I please. It feels so good not to be trammeled. Behind that quote, there seems to be an idea that doctrine isn't perfect and doctrine isn't the critical doctrine isn't the end all of what joseph smith was trying to accomplish as a prophet bruce r mcconkey said prophets are men and they make mistakes sometimes they err in doctrine there it is bruce r mcconkey one of the most conservative apostles we've ever had said sometimes prophets err in doctrine he also said i do not know all of the providences of the lord but i do know that he permits false doctrine to be taught in and out of the church and that such teaching is part of the sifting process of mortality brigham young said it is not the place for any person to correct any person who is superior to them but ask the father in the name of jesus to bind him up from speaking false principles i have known many times i have preached wrong a prophet admitting he preaches wrong he does he teaches the wrong thing sometimes another quote from charles penrose president wilford woodruff is a man of wisdom and experience and we respect him but we do not believe his personal views or utterances or revelations from god and when thus saith the lord does come from him the saints investigate it they do not shut their eyes and take it down like a pill from terrell givens it's always hard to know when you're quoting joe smith how much authority to invest in his different expressions because the thing I love about Joseph Smith is, I think it was in response to the failed Canadian copyright revelation, he said, well, some revelations are of God, some are of man, and some are of the devil. Don't you love a man who can say that and still expect you to take him seriously the next day? His words aren't all canonical. A lot of them should be, but not all. There's a couple of verses from the scriptures that get quoted a lot related to this idea of revelation, prophet, infallibility, and infallibility of doctrine. DNC 124 Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and, are, and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. And then also a similar verse from 2 Nephi 31 3. For my soul delighteth in plainness, for after this manner doth the Lord God work among the children of men. For the Lord God giveth light unto the understanding, for he speaketh unto men according to their language, unto their understanding. Let's break this down. It makes sense intuitively that God would need to speak to us according to our understanding. But why? Why couldn't he give a revelation using language that's not ours? Why couldn't he teach us new vocabulary in a revelation? Why couldn't he teach us outside of our current understanding? We go to DNC 9 where Oliver was taught about how to translate. And he was told his problem was that he didn't study it out and that he expected God to give it to him. I think these are all clues of what the revelation process is. I think he gives us doctrine according to our own understanding and in our own language because we are the ones producing this language. My idea of revelation is that it always has a humanistic contributory element. 
I think the way that God works with us is maybe like a, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, now you're getting colder, now you're getting colder, you're getting warmer again, you're getting warmer again. My understanding of how God works with us is much closer to that than to give us God-breathed instructions. And all of these quotes feel like that's what the prophets are trying to teach us. They're the ones getting the revelation. They're trying to teach us what how it works. And I think this is how they're teaching it. So how do we know when revelation is of God and when it's not? J. Reuben Clark gives some great insight. He says the prophets don't always teach by the Holy Ghost, but then how we can know? J. Reuben Clark says, even the president of the church himself may not always be moved upon by the Holy Ghost when he addresses the people. This has happened about matters of doctrine, where subsequent presidents of the church and the people themselves have felt that in declaring the doctrine, the announcer was not moved upon by the Holy Ghost. So he's talking about a future prophet, talking about a past prophet who's wrong. And how do we make sense of that? And he said, how shall the church know when these adventurous expeditions of the brethren into these highly speculative principles and doctrines meet the requirements of the statutes that the announcers thereof have been moved upon by the Holy Ghost, i.e. that they're absolutely true? The church will know by the testimony of the Holy Ghost in the body of the members whether the brethren in voicing their views are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and in due time that knowledge will be made manifest. This is what I mean when I say that Scripture may not be God-breathed, but Scripture is inspired in the sense that as a body of Christ and as a faith community, as we study Scriptures and these prophetic teachings, and the Holy Ghost works on us and inspires us as we interact with those teachings and those Scriptures, that's what separates sacred Scripture from something maybe like Lord of the Rings. It's very understandable why we want our doctrines and our teachings and our prophet to be perfect. Our teachings are very comforting. We want to know that we can live with our family again. We want to know that we can be forgiven of our sins. Pete Enns is one of my favorite Christian theologians. He's not LDS, but a lot of his teachings apply in our context. He wrote a book called Sin of Certainty, which I highly recommend. A quote from him. Doubt is God's instrument. It will arrive in God's time and it will come from unexpected places, places out of your control. And when it does, resist the fight or flight impulse. Pass through it patiently, honestly, and courageously for however long it takes. True transformation takes time. Richard Rohr is another one of my favorite Christian theologians. Here's a couple quotes from him. You cannot grow in the integrative dance of action and contemplation without a strong tolerance for ambiguity and ability to allow, forgive, and contain a certain degree of anxiety and a willingness to not know and not even need to know. He talks about getting comfortable with this ambiguity. When I was young, I couldn't tolerate such ambiguity. My education had trained me to have a lust for answers and explanations. Now at age 63, it's all quite different. Many religious folks insist on answers that are always true. We love closure, resolution, and clarity while thinking that we are a people of faith. How strange that the very word faith has come to mean its exact opposite. We talk about faith versus doubt, but the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Faith is a religious principle that we need. Faith is not knowing. Faith is not certainty. It's okay to doubt. I believe doubt is actually a form of faith. It means you haven't rejected things. You're just not certain, and you're wondering about your faith. Next subject, sustaining. I've heard this a lot from people in this faith crisis world that say, 
I can't get a temple recommend because I disagree with the brethren on gay marriage, for example, or I don't think the Book of Mormon is historical and the prophets teach that the Book of Mormon is historical. Therefore, I don't agree with the prophet. Therefore, I can't say that I sustain them when I have a temple recommend interview. I disagree with this completely. Terrell Givens gave this as a definition of to sustain. The word sustain only appears in the scriptures once, so I think it is a pretty important moment to infer its exact meaning. DNC 134.5 admonishes us to sustain and uphold the respective governments in which we reside. Now notice that we don't have to like or agree with a great deal that our governments do, but I take sustain in that case to mean we support the general framework, share its common purposes, and work for its betterment. To sustain the elected leaders of a government would similarly mean to recognize their legitimately derived authority and not work to undermine that authority, even if we voted for the other person. And then he applies that to sustaining the brethren. We can take what it means to sustain a government leader in the same sense we can sustain an apostle or a prophet. It means that we recognize their authority, we support them in their general purpose, but it does not mean that we always agree with them, even in some very important areas. Okay, a big issue with taking a paradigm like mine and viewing the church like the way I do is what do you do when you disagree with the brethren? How do you express dissent? Is it even possible to express dissent? You want to feel authentic. You don't want to feel like if you say you're a Latter-day Saint, that that means you agree with everything that is taught or represented by the church. I think it's okay not to do that. Let's look at three models on how to, to express that dissent from Richard Bushman, Elder Christofferson, and President Oaks. Richard Bushman said, I don't think you can ever abandon your conscience. What I'm pleading for is respect for those opinions. Recognize that they come from very strong, good, very experienced men, and take what they say very, very seriously. In the end, you may come down slightly different, but if your spirit is right and you really are trying to do what's right, you'll be okay. They're not going to condemn you for disagreeing with something like that if you do it in the right spirit. Then he talks about the model of American politics and where you advocate, you fight, you try to remove people from office, you protest. And that's not our model, he says. Our model is one of brotherhood and sisterhood where we're working with each other in cooperation. Within that spirit, he says, you can say all sorts of things and be just fine. My summary, what's okay is disagreeing if done in the right spirit. Expressing that disagreement by saying all sorts of things while maintaining spirit of brotherly and sisterly cooperation. What's not okay? Fighting, attempting to remove people from office, protesting. Next is Elder Christofferson in an interview with media representative Daniel Woodruff. Daniel Woodruff, I know that in one of the Temple Recommend interview questions it asked, do you support organizations that oppose the church? And I guess, I mean, could it be interpreted that if people supported gay marriage that that would be agreeing with something that was against the church? Elder Christofferson, well, it's not do you agree with a person's position or an organization's position. It is are you supporting organizations that promote opposition or positions in opposition to the church? So would supporting gay marriage threaten somebody's membership in the church if they went out, say, on Facebook or Twitter and actively advocated for it? That's Daniel Woodruff. Elder Christofferson, no. That's not an organized effort to attack our effort or attack our functioning as a church, if you will. Daniel Woodruff, so members can hold those beliefs even though they're different from what you teach at the pulpit. Elder Christofferson, yes. And then went on to say the church isn't going to force anyone how to believe they use Joseph Smith's model to teach with gentleness, persuasion, and love unfeigned.
so on this, my summary is it's okay to disagree with the brethren. It's okay to voice that opposing position on Facebook and social media. What's not okay is an organized effort to attack the church's functioning. Next, President Oaks. President Oaks gave a talk in conference on loyal opposition. He said some of this opposition even comes from church members. Some who use personal reasoning or wisdom to resist prophetic direction give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies, the loyal opposition. However appropriate for a democracy, there is no warrant for this concept in the government or God's kingdom, where questions are honored, but opposition is not. So President Oaks is an attorney with experience in government, and, and he's taking this example from politics. Loyal opposition is a political term, meaning the minority party that's not currently the ruling party. And you can see how dirty politics are sometimes. Right now, we've got an election going on, and you see some really fierce things from both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans, going after Biden and Trump. Use filibustering to stop people from being able to give their voice. We spread rumors. We do campaign ads that make fun of people. We raise money and resources to go after individuals. This is how politics works. That's how a loyal opposition would work. That talk made a lot of people nervous in the faith crisis world that thought, is he talking about me as the loyal opposition because I'm for gay marriage or I'm for something that's not agreeing with the brethren? And I don't think so. I think he's being very clear what that means. Unless you're participating in those more harsh tactics, I don't think he's talking about you at all. In a previous talk, President Oaks talked about criticizing the brethren. I do not refer to the kind of criticism the dictionary defines as the act of passing judgment as to the merits of anything. That kind of criticism is inherent in the exercise of agency and freedom. We have a right to expect critical evaluation of anything that is put into the marketplace or the public domain. Sports writers, reviewers of books and music, scholars, investment analysts, and those who test products and services must be free to exercise their critical faculties and to inform the public accordingly. This kind of criticism is usually directed towards issues, and it is usually constructive. My cautions against criticism refer to another of its meanings, which the dictionary defines as the act of passing severe judgment, censure, fault-finding. Fault-finding is the act of pointing out faults, especially faults of a petty nature. It is related to backbiting, which means to attack the character or reputation. This kind of criticism is generally directed towards persons, and it is generally destructive. My summary, what is okay? Disagreement and constructive criticism, what's not okay? Passing severe judgment, attacking the character and reputation of the church or leader, or engaging in dirty politics. I make a covenant to sustain the brethren, and that covenant is important to me. And so I'm paying very close attention to what the brethren are saying is okay and not okay, and I'm trying very hard to stay very far away from that line. Okay, now let's switch gears and talk about Revelation. Let's talk about two views of Revelation. One, I'm going to call a high view of Revelation from President Hinckley, and another, uh, what I call a low view of Revelation from President Nelson. And that's not to judge the quality of the Revelation. It's just a definition, and I'm using the words high and low to distinguish the, these two views of Revelation. President Hinckley said, now, we don't need a lot of continuing revelation. We have a great basic reservoir of revelation. But if a problem arises, as it does occasionally, a vexatious thing which we have to deal with, we go to the Lord in prayer. 
We discussed it as a first presidency, and as a council of the Twelve Apostles, we pray about it, and then comes the whispering of a still small voice, and we know the direction we should take, and we proceed accordingly. This is during a media interview. And this is a revelation? He says, yes, this is a revelation. How often have you received such revelations? Oh, I don't know. I feel satisfied that in some circumstances we've had such revelation. It's a very sacred thing that we don't like to talk about a lot. A very sacred thing. Another time he gave this quote about the revelation that overturned the priesthood ban in 1978. There was a hallowed and sanctified atmosphere in the room. For me, it felt as if a conduit opened between the heavenly throne and the kneeling, pleading prophet of God who was joined by his brethren. Every man in that circle, by the power of the Holy Ghost, knew the same thing. Not one of us who was present on that occasion was ever quite the same after that, nor has the church been quite the same. So that's a view of Revelation that's a high view. And it sounds like President Hickley is saying it's very rare. It might have only happened once in his lifetime, it, it appears, maybe. But it's infrequent, and it's very powerful. And when it happens, we can know for sure and completely that it's coming from God. That's what it feels like President Hinckley is saying. Now let's talk about President Nelson's view of Revelation and what I think he's trying to teach the church about Revelation and his presidency. He gave a talk in 2018 on Revelation, and he talked about it like it was a bit more commonplace. He said that when he was an apostle, he got revelation on a daily basis, and he invited all members to seek revelation regularly from God. He gave this cute little story about how he received revelation that as a widower, he met Wendy Watson, his wife now, and he received a revelation that she would be the one that he would marry. And then a cute story, she also received a separate revelation that she should marry him. And that's a romantic little story about them. But it gives insight into their view that revelation is a bit more commonplace. He has called both the decision to implement the LGBT policy in no November 2015. That was the policy that some children weren't allowed to be baptized if their parents were gay. And then 18 months later, that policy was reversed. He called both the implementation of that policy and the reversal of that policy, both revelations. Wendy Watson Nelson gave this interview and she referred to the revelations that he's receiving. She listed about a dozen of these and some of them seem relatively minor, like announcement to revise the hymn book or combining the elders and high priest quorum. Some of these might seem a little bit like minutia and not like revelation. In contrast to what President Hinckley defined as revelation, this seems like a very different view. And he's sometimes confusing President Nelson, sometimes uses high view language, like God says this in very absolute terms, or God is not pleased when we don't use the full name of the church. And he uses this high view of language. It's sometimes confusing to use that high view language of Revelation and using a view of Revelation that seems a little bit like low view. And that's been reacted to by some people that they don't like that President Nelson is putting this kind of new definition of Revelation when we've kind of been trained by Gordon B. Hinckley prior to that, that Revelation was something that seemed more rare and, and more powerful. Some people don't like this new view of Revelation, and I love it. And here's why. 
I think that having uh, the high view of revelation sets us up for failure in the sense that we we apply that infallibility concept to it. If we say it's very rare, then then that also implies that it's more certain and that it's God-breathed and it's infallible. And I just don't think that's the right way to view any kind of revelation. So I really like how President Nelson is training us to view revelation as it's a little bit more commonplace. Blake Osler's definition of revelation is human creativity responding to divine persuasion. I like that a lot. Humans are the ones creating it. We're responding to the divine, but it's humans that are creating the revelation. Now let's get philosophical and talk about prayer and revelation. You might ask, if you view God in a little bit more of this deist view that God is there, but he's not intervening frequently and directly, then why pray and what what really is revelation? And let me illustrate this point with this story that's going to seem really silly. So a few months ago, my wife couldn't find her car keys. Yeah, I'm going there. She looked everywhere. She turned the house upside down. She had to get somewhere. We only had one car at home at the time, and she only had one key to this car. And I was helping her look. We looked everywhere. She needed to get somewhere. She was so frustrated. And she turned to me and said, will you say a prayer with me? So I said a prayer with her. And as soon as I said amen, I knew exactly where the keys were. I pulled out my nightstand and I pulled it back and I looked underneath it behind the wall. There was the key. I'd been looking for this key and I hadn't checked there, but something snapped and I just knew immediately. What is that? Let's break this down in a couple ways. First, let's look at this as a completely a humanistic process with no spiritual intervention at all. I think prayer, seeking revelation, fasting, even fasting as a community, I think this helps focus our attention, and I think it sometimes helps us access a deeper part of our brain that may not feel accessible in the normal realm. It provides hyper-focus, and sometimes that might not be immediate. Sometimes we're chewing on it subconsciously by kicking off this process. Even from a just very humanistic, non-spiritual way, there is something very powerful and meaningful about prayer and meditation and seeking revelation. Next, let's talk about this as a spiritual process. Most Latter-day Saints believe that God answers prayers, and I don't mean to offend anybody whose that belief comes natural and it's easy. For me, it's difficult. I believe in God, and if, if you asked me, is it could it be real that God answers a prayer? like that. And on a good day, I would say yes. On a bad day, I would say no. These things are difficult for me from a faith perspective. And then I wonder if there's another aspect of this, maybe that there's a spiritual realm where there's this power that we can kind of connect to spiritually and pull from, where it's not necessarily God pushing an answer down, but there's this kind of interconnectedness that we have to each other, and it's a transcendent power or connectedness, and that we can somehow put ourselves into a mindset where we can tap into this and connect to this and draw strength and draw power and draw knowledge from. Last episode, I gave that quote I got from Don Bradley that an idea that we have may not be absolutely true, 
But by rejecting that idea, it might take us to a position that's further away from an absolute truth that does exist. I don't think maybe we understand prayer and revelation and the Holy Ghost and all these things perfectly, but I think there's something going on. And by rejecting it completely, I think it might take us further away from an absolute truth that does exist that we may not understand perfectly as humans. I acknowledge that it's really arrogant to think that I could pray to find my keys and God's going to give me my keys when some poor child in sex trafficking is praying to escape their world and no help comes. And it's arrogant to think that I might be privileged above somebody else that I would get some kind of answer like that. I understand how arrogant or offensive that might sound. I don't believe that prayer can be described as a vending machine that we put in our quarters and hit D5 and get a Kit Kat bar. I don't think it's like that, but I think it works somehow. I can't explain it, but I do believe in revelation. Next topic, trickle up revelation. One of my favorite topics. I learned this from Greg Prince. He talked about how sometimes policies are enacted in the church and prophet receives revelation on something where it's prompted by just regular members doing something and then it trickles up to the prophet who gets visibility on the issue and seeks revelation from the Lord and then a revelation is made. He gives an example of single adult wards where someone I think in California just said, we have a need for single adult wards, let's do it. And then they did it and it worked. And then the church saw how that worked and then received a revelation to implement that policy churchwide. And now we have, and now we have young adult wards. As part of the law of Moses, Israel was told not to have a king and that God would always be their king. Fast forward a few hundred years and the time just before Saul and they were getting beat down by neighboring enemies. They had just lost a battle and their enemies came in and stole the Ark of the Covenant. And they're deciding that they need a better organizational structure. And they said they wanted a king. Samuel is the prophet and he advises them not to do this, but they say it's important. They ask Samuel to receive a revelation about this. And they ask Samuel to go to God to ask if it's okay. And Samuel is reluctant, but he goes to God and says to God, the people want a king. What should we do? And first Samuel 8.22, and the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice and make them a king. And you might think this is like a passive aggressive thing where God is saying, okay, they want a king. They're going to disobey me. I said that I'd be their king, but if they really want a king, okay, I'll give them a king, but it's going to backfire. This is going to be bad news for Israel. But no, it was the right thing. Saul wasn't a great king, but then came David and then came Solomon. And this is Israel's glory years. They united Israel and they had power, and this was great for them. They built the temple. This was the peak of the, of the Israelite nation. This was their glory years. So the people were right. I believe this is a true concept that the body of Christ, and it's anachronistic to think of the Israelites as the body of Christ, but let's say the body of the LDS body of Christ, what we collectively wish for, I think God will honor. I think the prophet will honor the body of Christ. And that is a different way of thinking about things. And I'm not saying that the people dominate the prophet and override the prophet. And I think the prophet and God honor the, the voice of the people. And that puts a 
large responsibility on us as the body of Christ to be informed about issues and to be seeking the Holy Ghost on what's right and to have opinions on doctrines and teachings and ideas that are formed by following the the Spirit and the will of the Lord. And then I think if I disagree with a policy or if I have disagreement on something, I actually feel like I'm more empowered. I don't feel powerless in that there's this prophet that's like a dictator and I have no contribution into the process. We used to have common consent. In Joseph Smith's day, in the early days, they voted on things and they would vote on whether or not a revelation should go into scripture, into the Doctrine and Covenants. They voted on a lot of things and it's called, and it's called the Doctrine of Common Consent. There was even one anecdote where Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon disagreed on something and kind of got in an argument. And Sidney Rigdon was in the first presidency at the time. And Joseph Smith wanted to get rid of him and remove him from his office in the first presidency. And they had a little debate. And Joseph Smith spoke to the people. And Sidney Rigdon spoke and defended himself. And then others came up and spoke and testified on, on their view of the issue. And then the people voted. And guess how they voted? They voted to keep Sidney Rigdon in his office. And Joseph Smith went along with it as the prophet. He didn't say, no, I'm the prophet. I'm the boss. I'm, I get my way. He honored that as the doctrine of common consent. And I'm not making a too strong of a point here. I'm not saying that we're wrong and that we don't do that anymore. I think that logistically it would be impossible for us as a 15 million member church to have to still do the common consent. And we have an organizational structure that's a little bit different, but I think the prophet does honor the voice of the people and the LDS body of Christ. And so we're empowered. If we disagree with something, we don't need to campaign against the prophet. We need to discuss amongst our family and amongst our friends and amongst our sphere of influence. And, and good ideas will win the day, I believe. And if there are ideas that need to change, the Holy Ghost will work on the body of Christ and those ideas will come forward and then they will become visible by the prophet and our church leaders. And the prophet will seek revelation on that. And I think that's a reasonable view of how change is made in our church. So my contribution in this effort is to have an informed opinion following the Holy Ghost and respectfully state my opinion. And then it stops there. If that opinion is something that is shared by a large portion of the body of Christ, then there's a good chance that the prophet will then take it upon himself. And then that becomes his responsibility, not mine. It becomes the prophet's responsibility to seek revelation and to decide for the church, which is his steward, to receive revelation from God what direction to go. I don't think that's always how revelation is received by the prophet, but I think that is a process that occurs in our church sometimes. Okay, I want to go into the revelation overturning the priesthood ban to kind of highlight some of these issues. In the Brigham Young era, people spoke of black people and the priesthood ban in a way that is very offensive to us in our understanding and using racist language and made it seem like it would be impossible that the priesthood ban could ever be removed. They tied this to doctrine and scripture. Fast forward this to the 50s, 60s, 70s, this was a huge issue. The church had grown internationally 
and we had black African-American saints. We had uh, black saints in Africa and in Brazil where the church was growing. And we had many black Latter-day Saints that wanted the priesthood and wanted temple blessings. And this was really hurtful to a lot of people. And this was an issue that was almost breaking the church. Bruce R. McConkie wrote in an early edition of Mormon Doctrine, and this was removed. This quote was removed from Mormon Doctrine. And also, the book Mormon Doctrine is no longer published by the church. But this quote did appear in an early edition of Mormon Doctrine. Negroes in this life are denied the priesthood. Under no circumstances can they hold this delegation of authority from the Almighty. The gospel message of salvation is not carried affirmatively to them. Negroes are not equal with other races where the receipt of certain spiritual blessings are concerned. That sounds terrible, and I hate reading that, but we're going to read another quote from Bruce R. McConkie in a little bit that hopefully redeems him just a little bit, at least. Spencer W. Kimball became the prophet on December 30, 1973, about four years before the revelation in 1978. He was asked early in his presidency about this, and he said he did not anticipate a change, but if a change would come, it would be from the Lord by revelation. He was sort of an unknown on this issue. Scholars Greg Prince and Paul Reeve shed some light on this issue and give us a picture of what was going on. They debated this issue among the Quorum of the Twelve for several decades. Hubie Brown was known for one of the ones being on the progressive side of this issue. And Harold B. Lee and Ezra Taft Benson were a couple on the conservative side of this issue. And they had some heated debates. And Paul Reeve actually says that they came really, really close. I think it was either in the 50s or the 60s of overturning the ban. And, but it just didn't quite go through. David O. McKay was known as being more of a moderate and maybe leaning towards Hubie Brown's side of this issue, but he just never pulled the trigger. Then Harold B. Lee became prophet, and he was kind of known as a hardliner, and it was assumed that this was going to go on for a long time and that President Kimball would never even weigh in on this because he was older than Harold B. Lee and assumed that he would never become prophet. But then Harold B. Lee died younger than people expected, and President Kimball became the prophet, and he's thrust into the spotlight on this issue. And this became his thing. He was known to spend hours alone in the temple studying and praying on this issue. He requested his own key to the Salt Lake Temple, and he was known to go and be in the temple in the evening after the temple was closed and walk the hallways of the temple and spend hours alone studying and praying on this issue. Greg Prince says that he had a copy of a famous article that Lester Bush published in Dialogue on the priesthood ban, and he had marked it up in red pen all over the place. He was studying everything he could get his hands on, it appeared, to understand if there were doctrinal roots to the to this priesthood ban and why it was there and just to do his part, to study it out and to do his part in seeking a revelation. And you can feel for President Kimball. Brigham Young is a big name to try to go up against and try to overturn. And if Brigham Young has got so many outspoken quotes on this, you can understand that that feels pretty weighty for President Kimball to try to overturn this. And he spent a lot of time in reflection, trying to understand and seeking revelation. 
His son, Ed Kimball, wrote about his father's feelings during all this, and he said that President Kimball appreciated the positive pleas and prayers from LDS, and that that was a positive, helpful thing for him when people would write to him and tell him their feelings on this. But what he said was a negative thing was the external pressure. When he felt external pressure and the protests and the criticism that came externally, that made him feel like the church shouldn't give in to this pressure because it would seem like it wasn't a revelation. And those negative methods made it more difficult for him. So that day finally came in 1978. He received the revelation and it was announced and it was a beautiful thing. The, the reactions worldwide were overwhelmingly positive. It was a great day for the Black Latter-day Saints in the church and for the entire church in general. My favorite reaction was from Bruce R. McConkie. He said this, There are statements in our literature by the early brethren which we have interpreted to mean that the Negroes would not receive the priesthood in mortality. I said the same things, and people write me letters and say, You said such and such, and how is it now that we do such and such? And all I can say to that is that it is time disbelieving people repented and got in line and believed in a living modern prophet. Forget everything that I have said or what President Brigham Young or President George Q. Cannon or whomsoever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without the light and knowledge that now has come into the world. And just like that, they changed. They turned 180 on this issue and they moved forward and they said, everything we said in the past was wrong. We have a living prophet. He received revelation and we're moving forward. Now let's talk about a couple issues where some of us may think that we might be in a similar situation where we have something wrong in the church and we're hoping that the prophet receives a revelation to change policy or doctrine. I think the church is a net positive in the world. It's a net positive in my life and it's a net positive in the world. And that's very important for me. If it wasn't a net positive in the world, then I think it would be wrong for me to support it. But I do believe that by far it's a net positive in the world in the good things that it does. But just because it does a lot of great things and even that it's a net positive, even a huge net positive, that doesn't mean that it doesn't do any bad things and it doesn't do any harmful things. Any organization as huge as the church with 15 million members and, and a massive impact and force in the world some of that impact is probably going to be negative and harmful. Just like everyone has a list of the things that are most important to them about the church that they love about the church the most, and I have that list. I've been sharing it with you through this podcast series. I'm going to share a lot of that again in episode 12, The Lived Experience. But just like people have that list of all the things they love about the church, different people have things that they view as being harmful and that they hope can change or something that a prophet can receive revelation on and we can make more progress into the future. The list of things that I think the church is harmful on is small for me, but there are a few. I think we need to do better with the shame that we put on members concerning sexuality, especially masturbation and pornography for youth. I support the law of chastity, but I think there's some aspects of it, and especially regarding shame, that we can do better on as a church. Just like any other organization, I think we could do better on racism issues. The two big pressing issues for me that I can say are very harmful in some ways are LGBT issues and female equality issues. 
we've talked about how we can express dissent and disagreement within the church and do it in the right way as a covenant-keeping LDS, and I hope to model that right now and talk about these two issues. I'm a 49-year-old straight white male, and I know that brings me privilege in this world and in this church, and I also know that my views on LGBT and female equality may not be the most progressive and the most up-to-date. I've said before, I'm a traditionalist. I'm a little conservative. I vote Republican. I'm more moderate on political issues. I'm kind of in the middle, but I lean a little conservative and Republican. I'm a convert to some of these issues late in my life, and I believe that I'm an ally, but let me just share how I see these. On LGBT, I'm learning from Bryce Cook's great article, What Do We Know of God's Will for His LGBT Children? An Examination of the LDS Church's Position on Homosexuality. I highly recommend that one. I'm learning from Greg Prince has done some work on this. I'm learning from faithful gay Latter-day Saints like Calvin Burke, Tom Christofferson, Elder Christofferson's brother, and Richard Osler's podcast, Learn, Listen, and Love. I highly recommend that one. A lot of great insights into these issues. On female equality issues, I'm trying to learn from female active LDS feminist leaders like Neelan McBain, Joanna Brooks, Jana Reese. She's really good because she does a lot of studies with data, and I love data. So I apologize for my inadequacy to be able to really do these issues justice. My core competency in this is the historical issues that I've spent most of my time in this podcast series doing. And these social issues, I'll do my best. First issue is with our LGBT members. We as a human society view homosexuality different than we used to. A former view of homosexuality was that it was a choice, it was perversion. We called it same-sex attraction. We viewed homosexuality as something that was underground and hidden. We viewed it as a culture of promiscuity and dangerous activity. And I think the reason for that was that it was not accepted and it was shameful. And so it was all done hidden and behind the scenes. And so naturally, that kind of leads into a vicious circle that promotes these perceptions that we had of homosexuality in the past. Now, as a society, we see gay people getting married. We see gay people in long-term relationships. Now that it's accepted, people come out of the closet and it's more prevalent, it's more common than we thought it was. And it's no longer associated with some of those same views that we had of it before, of the promiscuity and the dangerous activity and the perversion and so on. American society in general has changed in perception of LGBT, and our church has changed a lot also in its perception. The scriptural evidence against homosexuality is not clear. Jesus never addressed it. Paul addressed it, but it was in a certain context. In ancient Rome, homosexuality was usually expressed in ways that were not the best prostitution, pedophilia, a power imbalance situation usually. So it's obvious that if that's your view of homosexuality, that all those things should be preached against, which Paul did. The law of Moses addressed it, but it also addressed other sexual views that we no longer have. And frankly, a lot of weird stuff in the law of Moses that we've, that we no longer take at all. 
people say the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is homosexuality, but if you read that passage, it's not. That's a really ancient and weird story. If you look at it, a mob formed outside of where Abraham and Lot were staying with the two messengers of God, the angels from God, a mob formed of both male and female, and they demanded the angels come out of the house so that they could rape them. So I guess you could say homosexuality is involved in that somehow, but only in the same way that you would call rape related to heterosexuality. The LDS Church has already changed in many areas in how we view LGBT issues. We used to view homosexuality as a choice. We used to call it same-sex attraction. We now call it a sexual orientation. We now acknowledge that there are gays, that there's a such thing as a gay person. We no longer talk about homosexuality as something that should be repented of or that is curable. Elder Holland gave that great talk on mothers where she, where he talked about a mother's gay son who she was anguishing over his difficult experiences. And then he said, quote, I must say this son's sexual orientation did not somehow miraculously change. No one assumed it would. So let's break that down. Elder Holland said that the son's sexual orientation changing would be a, a miraculous change and that no one assumed that it would, even though this was part of this very spiritual process where this mother and her son worked together to overcome these difficult challenges he was facing in the church as a, as a gay person. So Elder Holland is acknowledging that changing someone's sexual orientation would be a miracle and that something that we don't assume happens. Studies show that our gay Latter-day Saint youth and adults suffer disproportionately with depression and suicide. I think we're not really sure what to do. We're in a transition period where we used to understand it as a sin, as a choice, as something to be repented of. And we had a clear view of what gay Latter-day Saints should do. They should repent and they should overcome their sexual attraction and they should get married in a heterosexual marriage in the temple and they should live the same way straight people live. But now we don't think that anymore. We're in a transition and we're not really sure. There's no clear counsel to young gay Latter-day Saints on what they should do. They could marry heterosexually, but I think that's not encouraged. I think we recognize empirically that that causes a lot of problems and that those marriages are very difficult. And I don't think that's the default advice. I'm not an expert on this. My understanding is that maybe for a portion of people that identify as gay, that they could do a successful heterosexual marriage, but I don't think that's for the majority. And I don't think that's what the church is recommending. Second view is that they can be lifelong celibate. I think that's a recipe for disaster. I saw a study that six and a half percent of all Catholic priests have sexually abused children. That's a huge study and a huge slice of a population to see what's going on. I'm not bashing on the Catholic Church here, but when you take these vows of celibacy and if you're facing a life of celibacy, it does a lot of weird things to people's psyche. That's a basic human need. Romantic relationships, sexual relationships, long-term intimate relationships, it's a basic, basic human need. And telling a large segment of your population that that's what you want them to do, I just don't think that's right. 
Studies are showing us that about 3 to 5% of the population are gay. That's a huge portion of our children, our grandchildren, that we just don't have a good answer for. As it's now becoming culturally acceptable to come out as gay, we're seeing more and more people that we know. 5% is 1 out of 20, so 1 out of 20 people that you know are gay. You're going to know a child or a grandchild or a friend, a, a niece, a nephew, a friend's son or daughter. This is happening all over the place, and it's a tough issue. We don't know what to do with these people, and a lot of people are leaving the church, and a lot of family members leaving the church when they have a son or daughter come out as gay. I mentioned this before, but one of our first scripture stories, Adam chooses leaving with his wife over staying with God. We're great at ingraining love and commitment in family, and that's a beautiful thing about our church and our doctrine, and it's causing people to want to leave the church when they have a gay child. This is something that I hope a prophet can receive a revelation on, and I hope that it can happen quickly. I see a couple steps in a path forward. The first step, which I think could happen soon, and I hope it happens soon, and I don't think it requires any doctrinal change whatsoever, would be a policy, no doctrine change at all, but a policy that our gay Latter-day Saints could marry in a gay relationship and retain their membership, be temple-worthy, serving callings, be a normal, functioning, faithful Latter-day Saint, and be in a gay marriage. That seems relatively simple and, and not requiring any doctrine at all. Then I think what would be most healing and that I hope could happen in the future, and this I think is a, maybe a longer horizon on this, is that those gay marriages could be sealed in the temple. And I think that would take a lot of work reframing some of our doctrines on some of the things we talked about in the last episode, King Follett doctrine. I think a prophet could rework some of this theology, view Heavenly Mother a little bit different, view the idea that God is an exalted man a little bit differently, back off just a little bit in terms of the view of sex as a eternal and spiritual concept. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. It's not my scope, but I think that these are all areas that we could modify our theology just a little bit to incorporate gay ceilings and to imagine gay people being married in the eternities. In our religion, we find great meaning in being fathers and mothers and in family and in raising children, and we're committed to marriage, we're committed to family, and that's one of our strengths as a church, and I see no reason why that can't be extended to our gay brothers and sisters. We can be the church that is taking a stand. We're for marriage, we're for family, and it doesn't matter if that's a straight marriage or a gay marriage. We are for family, we're for committed marriages. Next issue, female equality. I have two daughters, and I think that they had a good experience in the church. I think they were raised to feel like they were just as good as males. They were raised to feel like they could do anything they wanted to. They had just as many opportunities as boys to become whatever they wanted to become. They've had good female role models in the church, both traditional 
females, stay-at-home mothers with more traditional roles, and also female Latter-day Saints who've modeled more progressive way of being. Doctors, lawyers, psychologists, college professors. I feel like they've had great female role models in their lives in the church. They've served missions, and I think they've had good experiences in the church that have trained them to go out and be their best and do what they want in life. But then I also have noticed that as they've gone to college and got exposure to more ideas and maybe and to some feminist views, that they've realized how maybe some of the equality issues in the church has affected them and has hurt them. And as I've seen them go through that process, it's pained me a little bit, and I wish my church was a little bit more equitable to both males and females. Neelan McBain is a faithful Latter-day Saint who has written books and spoken on female equality issues. She says that church is the only place where our young women are given the message that their gender limits them. Everywhere else, business, government, anything you can think of, females can go all the way to the top. They can be the president, they can be the governor, they can be the CEO of a company, they can be the doctor, they can be the head medical doctor of a hospital. Anything that they might be involved with outside the church, they can rise to the top. But in church is the one place where their gender limits them. Many people don't know this, but in the early years of the church, females gave blessings by the laying on of hands. Joseph Smith said, Respecting the female laying on of hands, it is no sin for anybody to do it that has faith. If the sisters should have faith to heal the sick, let all hold their tongues and let everything roll on. That practice was abandoned with President Heber J. Grant, and they shifted it to be a priesthood duty. But that started out not connected to the priesthood and something that females did. It's obvious to us that in ancient cultures, women didn't have the same rights as men. And that that has been a slow process over time with women catching up with their rights to men and being considered equal and being able to have the same equity that men have. And that's a process that's been taking place in our society slowly over hundreds of years. And we're finally kind of to that point in society today where females feel equal. But in our church, we have a lot of practices which seem to have evolved from more ancient times where women don't seem to have that same equity. We've made a lot of progress in recent years. The mission age change made missions more accessible for young women. Women are praying in general conference when they were never allowed to pray before. The general women's session is now considered an official part of general conference. A big change was the change in temple language, where husbands are no longer the gatekeepers of their wives' connection to God. That was removed. That was a big one that was very hurtful to a lot of women, and we're very thankful for that change. Neelan McBain says that most women don't want the priesthood, and I'm not a woman, so my voice doesn't really count here. I kind of think that women should have the priesthood, and when I read the doctrinal reasons, I'm not convinced that this is based in true eternal doctrine, but that it's more likely based in ancient cultural attitudes. But Neelan McBain says women don't want the priesthood, they want equality. They don't want the same role as men, but they want to be considered equal. In a recent study of people that left the church or struggling with faith, 70% of the women in the study attributed women's issues as a top issue for them. 
I'm doing this podcast on faith crisis issues and people leaving the church or, or thinking they need to leave the church because their faith has changed and they don't fit in line with the mainstream with some views that they feel like are necessary to stay in the church. For men, these historical issues seem to be a little bit bigger of, of a deal. The reason men leave the church is more likely to be related to church history issues, scripture issues, like we've talked about, Book of Mormon historicity, Book of Abraham. They no longer believe that the church is the one true church, things like that. I was once talking to a woman about this issue, and she said, faith crisis over church history issues is a male privilege. That's an interesting idea. She said, women are so focused on becoming equal in the church and the way that they're treated relative to how men are treated and focused on equality issues that they don't have time for faith crisis on Book of Mormon historicity or these other faith crisis issues. These don't even come on the radar screen for most women. And that's a generalization, but darn, that's tough to hear. But these studies bear it out. For women, the top issue are the more of these social issues, and for men, they seem to be the historical issues. McBain says we need to evaluate how we are doing with women's issues in three areas, visibility, influence, and voice. And she believes that we're overly conservative in how we're interpreting church doctrine and policy relating to give females more in these areas of visibility, influence, and voice. What she says is that if it's not specifically spelled out in the handbook that you can't do something and it's related to female equality, try doing it. You don't need permission for everything. If it's not explicitly spelled out that you can't and it makes sense that it might be possible, give it a try. And she gives a few examples of things that people are doing across the church. She says a bishop can't have the young woman pass the sacrament. Obviously, that's against the rules right now, but there's no reason a young woman couldn't be in a visible role like being the usher. We give that to the teachers. The deacons pass the sacrament, the priests bless it, and the teachers are the ushers. Well, Neilan McBain says there's no reason that, that our young women couldn't do a, a role like ushering. She also gives an example of one bishop who called two female assistants to the bishopric who sit on the stand with the bishop and conduct sacrament meetings. There appears to be no doctrinal rule that sacrament meeting needs to be conducted by a priesthood leader. So that's an example. She says that, that a bishop can kind of push the limits and see if it works. Bishops are also having Relief Society presidents sit on the stand. They're referring to the Relief Society president as president as her title when they reference her. These are just little things that we can just take the initiative on. And if a stake president or if Salt Lake says, no, you went too far, you can't do that, then they then we can pull back. But if it's not expressly denied in the handbook, Neely McBain thinks we should be a little bit more aggressive in, in making things more equal. I think they should have the priesthood. I think there's no reason we can't have a female bishop, a female stake president, apostles, even the prophet someday. I look at between me and my wife, who would be a better bishop? Hands down, not even a question. My wife would be a much better bishop than me. There are some things that I would do better than my wife, but she would be a better bishop than I would be. Logistically, there's a lot of issues like how would you have a combined sex, like bishopric, you know, with men and women working together, a, a male bishop and a female counselor? That's kind of sticky when you have married people working together so closely like that. So there's a lot of issues like that, but 
businesses have figured this out. Governments, government organizations, organizations across the world have figured this out. And I think it's time our church can figure this out too. I'm a Latter-day Saint. I'm here to stay. I have hope and optimism that the church will move in the direction that I'm hoping it will on these issues. But I'm a Latter-day Saint because I believe in this church and what it does for me and the meaning that it gives me in my life, the objective to create a heaven on earth and to keep my covenants and to help me stay on track, to repent of my sins, to have that weekly reminder and take the sacrament to get back on track in my life and to be a better person. I'm not here in this church to try to change the church on female equality and LGBT issues. I hope that this happens, and I think that it can. There's a view from some conservative members that someone with a non-traditional testimony like mine and someone with these views on LGBT and female equality are just here because they want to change the church, and that's not true. I'm here to stay. I love this church. I need this church for myself, and that's why I'm here. Okay, let's wrap up here. Elder Oakdorf said, Because Heavenly Father loves his children, he has not let left them to walk through this mortal life without direction and guidance. Today is not different from ages past. The Lord does not love the people of our day any less than in past times. One of the glorious messages of the restoration of the church of of Jesus Christ is that God continues to speak to his children. He is not hidden in the heavens, but speaks today as he did in ancient days. I love this description of a prophet's role from the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 5, verse 49 to 51. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, Let us go down to and hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire, that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard, for I have done all. What could have I done more from my vineyard? But behold, the servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, Spare it a little longer. And the Lord said, Yea, I will spare it a little longer, for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Here we have a the servant representing the prophet, advocating for this vineyard, which is, I think, which I think is symbolizing like the body of the church. And the prophet is advocating for the members. And I view the prophet like this. I view the prophet like President Kimball walking the hallways of the Salt Lake Temple at night, agonizing over this difficult issue, hearing the cries of his people and wanting to represent them to God and advocating for them and advocating for their rights. I view President Nelson as doing this. This is why I sustain the brethren. I think they're good people and they're doing the best they can. And I may not agree with them always, but I think they're good and they're trying to do their best. There's a music album by Michael McLean called The Garden. It's kind of a parable showing four characters in a garden representing the human family in a vulnerable state in desperate need of the Savior. And there's this scene where there's a gardener and he's representing the prophet and the gardener is taking care of these four characters. And then there's a scene where a figure representing Satan comes and tells these four characters that they're worthless and hopeless and doomed and they have no hope and the gardener has no power to save them. And then the Satan figure leaves and the gardener comes in and the four characters are asking the gardener in this simple innocence, is that true? We thought we could count on you. Is this true that you have no power to save us? And the gardener tells them, I cannot save you. It's true. I cannot save you. It's true. 
but I am bringing good news. An holy one will surely come to do what we can't do. And then he goes on to sing this beautiful song, testifying of the love and power of Jesus Christ. And he's not the one that can save them, but he can point them to Christ who can save them. That's the role of the prophet. He's here to tend and care for the flock and point us to Jesus Christ. And I think that's what we wanted to accomplish today. I hope that what we did here was show that the prophet is human. Prophet is not perfect. Prophet has an important role. Someone has to lead the church, right? I hope we showed what it means to sustain the prophet and that you can get a temple recommend even if you don't agree with everything the prophet says or the church says. I hope we showed and modeled how you can disagree with things about the church and still be authentic. I hope I didn't go too far pushing these uh, LGBT and female equality issues. I think these are issues we need to make progress on, but the same sense I sustain and love the prophet. And I guess that's it. Thank you for listening to the end, and please join us next time. <laughs>